Welcome to Dispatches, the official podcast for the Journal of the American Revolution. The Journal of the American Revolution publishes weekly online at www.allthingsliberty.com. For the latest in research, reviews, and commentaries, America's Most Important History is available free of charge at the Journal of the American Revolution. But this is uh, probably the best documented regiment in the Continental Army for a one-year period. I don't think there's anyone out there that can even match this. That's Journal of the American Revolution contributor and author Phil Weaver talking about his new book, The Third New Jersey in New York, Stories from the Jersey Grays of 1776. And he's our guest today. I'm Brady Kreitzer, and this is Dispatches. This episode is sponsored by the University of Pennsylvania Press, publishers of Captives of Liberty, Prisoners of War and the Politics of Vengeance in the American Revolution by T. Cole Jones, available wherever books are sold. Hello, ladies and gentlemen, and welcome to another episode of Dispatches. I'm your host, Brady Kreitzer. Our guest today is a good friend of the show, regular JAR contributor, and former guest, Phil Weaver, talking about his new book, The Third New Jersey in New York, Stories from the Jersey Grays of 1776. Now, this is going to be me, Brady, your humble podcast host, just talking for a bit, right? It is my job. Um, but I, I always have trouble getting excited for regimental histories. Um, and that is on me. That is not on you if you like regimental histories or anyone who writes regimental histories. And I can tell you why. Uh, it's from my previous studies of the American Civil War. A regimental history is a labor of love. It is valuable history. It's important. It just doesn't have a lot of practical usage in my life. You know, it's very narrowly focused, which is obviously what we do. But I always struggle through regimental histories. Here's why I'm admitting this to you. I'm admitting this to the world. I'm supposed to say I love all history, right? But regimental histories are a chore for me in a lot of ways. Uh, but it's because of the Civil War. What I have found inevitably is that when there's a Revolutionary War regimental history, uh, it's always way more interesting to me. Uh, and there's not very many of them because it's hard work. I mean, it is very difficult to research and publish a very strong regimental history in the 18th century just due to the nature of, of military organization compared to, say, the Civil War. That being said, uh, I like World War II regimental history, so maybe it's just a Civil War thing with me. But at any rate, our guest today, Phil Weaver, has written a book that has done something that's not easy to do. Really, something only that my wife has been consistently able to do, which is change my mind. Uh, his book on the Jersey Grays is a first-rate narrative story. Um, think of it as sort of, I guess, part expendables and part dirty dozen. It's really it's really a neat story. It involves all the major figures you want to see in a Revolutionary War story. George Washington being amongst, you know, obviously the biggest one. 
But it's sort of this this unique regiment that's put together that gets into all these crazy kind of uh, 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 engagements and activities. Um, and and it, it really is a thorn in the side of everyone that commands it. And is, is something, you know, whose problems cause George Washington to pay regular attention. It is a really neat book. Uh, and, and far more different than any regimental history of I've, I've ever read. It's just really a first-rate study. If you're a hardcore Revolution or War person, you're going to want to read this. If you just love a good yarn, a good story, um, again, like I said, part Expendables, part Dirty Dozen, um, it's just a really fun, well-written, well-researched book. Um, and I love talking to Phil Weaver about it. So sit back, relax, and enjoy our interview with Phil Weaver. Phil Weaver, thank you for joining us. Thanks, Brady. Appreciate it. Good to talk to you again. Tell us about your background. Okay, I've, I've been a, nut, a history nut since uh, I was a kid, both the Civil War, and I dabbled in a little bit of Rev War, but... Uh, as so we got to my college years, I discovered the bicentennial because I'm that age, and uh, the whole world of living history. And this led me to my interest in historical research. And then I kind of got into some articles, and I first one was published in 1979 nationally. And my efforts at that time were articles about living history and general Revolutionary War history. But I soon got migrated into articles on uniforms, equipment, and unit histories in soldier stories, the latter of which I use for the jar a lot. <laughs> Basically, that's all I do write about. And then in addition to those uh, histories, I got into the Company of Military Historians many years ago, and I served as West Point Chapter Chairman, and I was elected back in 2004 as a fellow of the company. So I've been around a while. Where did you get the idea for this book? Uh, we can bring in a, f- a fellow uh, JAR member, Don Hages, into this conversation. Because uh, Don first asked me to write for the JAR. He and I go back in living history for our half a lifetime. And I told him I couldn't do it because I wanted to write one of those stodgy, boring unit histories on the second New York. And uh, for 1775, which is a unit I've done for many, many years. And Don suggested, well, why don't you do some short stories and short articles and use them to build for the book. And I said, that's a good idea. Maybe I'll do that. So uh, it started, and what I, what I found out was I had more detailed sources for the third New Jersey, which is a sidebar interest of mine. And so I started doing articles about them too. And they were basically easier to write because I had more sourcing. Uh, the Yorkers, you have to pick around. This is I had this stuff right there. I had diaries and journals and orders and a whole bit right there. So a few years ago, uh, I had run out of the major stories I had written for the for the jar on the jerseys. So I thought about Don's original idea, and I said, maybe I just string these stories together, chain them together, as it were. Uh, I'll get a quick book out of it. A little bridge text. Well, <laughs> quick it wasn't. Uh, it took a wee bit longer than I thought. Uh, the articles didn't chain together sequentially. I uh, needed to rework and update them, and then... Uh, the footnotes needed to be standardized because the jar styles keep changing over time. So I had to go back and fix all the footnotes. And the bridge text, which is connecting the articles, literally covered jerseys going from place to place. And that was all new research. 
And so two and a half years later, I finally had this book. It's about 30% longer than what I planned, but it's still a manageable size and price-wise it's good. So it came out very well. This is a really unique regimental history. Tell us about how the third New Jersey was formed. Well, it's actually pretty simple, really, because after the Quebec fell apart in 1775, uh, I would, they saw, I don't say the whole, the whole campaign was still on. There was a siege going on and he wanted to bolster this, this force that was up there because the workers were leaving the connected guys had already left and they were holding on by a thread. The only thing that was preventing from getting overrun was winter. So, Continental Congress decided to go within the second year or the second establishment, and they ordered two regiments to go north, but of the, of, for New Jersey. But then, uh, the, I'm actually getting ahead of myself. I apologize. The assault fell, and that the, the Jerseys had already sent two regiments in as part of the new establishment in for 1776. But then the assault fell. And that prompted them to say, we need one more regiment. So this is where the third came. So they were staggered. There's three months difference. So their enlistments and stuff are always three months late. So as you find in the book, they were the last guy standing because they started late. So uh, they were officially ordered on uh, January 10th of 1776, where the other ones were ordered in October. Now, they, the recruits were to be healthy, sound, able-bodied freemen above the age of 16. And like most regiments, they were recruited by company locally with the officers got warrants, they recruited their men, and then they would start recruiting and use the old F&I war barracks that sprinkled across New Jersey, and I list where they are in the book. And, uh, and that's how they used the staging areas, and as they recruited, they, they kind of leapfrogged across lower New Jersey and into Perth Amboy. And... Uh, Took some stars and stops, but they eventually made it to New York City, where they mustered in the Continental Army, and then ultimately sailed to Albany as part of the relief force from John Sullivan's new brigade. It was going up to relief Canada. One of the first big-time stories in your book is about the plunder of Johnson Hall. Tell us about that. Sure. Um, Johnson Hall... Uh, is the plunder of Johnson Hall is the, is the mark on a regiment that never goes away. And uh, it, uh, it actually was a jar article. It actually became, was also in the jar book. So it's in here too with some more stuff and uh, a little bit of repackaging of the information. And actually there's more stuff not in it yet. I found some more. But be as it may, we have quite a bit here. And what happened is after reaching Albany, about 300 of the regiment, uh, which was about two-thirds of it were ordered to go by General Schuyler to say, look, I need you guys to go over to uh, Johnstown area and capture Sir John Johnson, who was the son of the former uh, Indi- head of Indian Affairs, Sir William Johnson, was back at French Indian Warta. And Sir John basically inherited his father's position, and he got done, maybe not specifically, but... He was that big cahoon, and he had caused trouble in the Mohawk Valley the year before and with loyalists and getting... He had Highlanders that worked for him. It was a big, involved situation that I skipped over because I didn't want to take the time to get into that. Uh, Norm Boland talks about that in his recent book um, on uh, George Washington. 
in the Mohawk Valley. But what they needed to do was they wanted to keep Johnson from causing trouble because they didn't trust him. So that's why they sent the third jersey there. And they barely missed him. They didn't get there on time. So uh, their other orders was to secure the area and secure Johnson Hall and then get all the papers and anything else they could find, et cetera, and so forth. And the one thing they were told not to do, don't damage the property. They weren't supposed to touch it. And if you, it's a New York State historic site now. It's a very impressive big manor house, two outbuilt, two block houses right next to it and a lot of several smaller outbuildings. So it's a, it's a pretty neat place. And they got into this whole thing and alcohol got in the way, I think. And believe it or not, the officer corps that were there, not all of them, but most of them, because some of the other ones were not around the hall at the time, but the ones that were there, they broke in. And they sold a lot of stuff, got a few enlisted men involved to bring it out, and then they got drunk, <laughs> and they kept drinking, and then they got drinking, and they decided, well, let's get some let's get some more booze, and it just got out of hand. So when Colonel Dayton found out, Colonel Elias Dayton of New Jersey, uh, he was not a happy camper, because <laughs> these were his orders, don't mess with anything. And um, the enlisted men get the rap, but it's the officers that did this. So he said, all right, here's what we're going to do. If you bring everything back, all is forgiven. And you got 24 hours to put everything back. And they all basically did, except one lieutenant by the name of McDonald, if I remember it off the top of my head because I didn't write it down. Uh, McDonald refused to uh, return one particular cane. He came out a bunch of stories, but one lousy cane. And because of that, <laughs> he became the scapegoat. And like all stories we've heard throughout time, the Army's got to have a scapegoat. He was it. So he got cashiered. Luckily, he didn't get flogged or any other punishment. No flies or anything. They basically just kicked him out of the regiment. And then there was other trials and other court martials for the other officers. And um, the generals got involved. And I go into a lot of this, uh, some neat letters and stuff. But ultimately... It's a whitewash. And that's kind of what happened. They took everything. They all put it back. The enlisted men involved pointed fingers at the officers who told them what to do. And everybody had trial, and nobody went to jail. Except one guy got kicked out. Who was Lady Johnson, and how does she fit into this story? Oh, sure. Uh, she was Sir John's wife. Uh, who had left, he had left her behind. Uh, she actually developed a good relationship with Sir Joseph Bloomfield and kind of like an aunt-nephew situation because he came up to, to meet her uh, on his own pretext to meet one of the daughters who wasn't there. But he used that to get to know her a little bit, and they, became, they had a very good relationship. So the powers that be with the Colonel Dayton, General Schuyler, and other people in Albany, Nobody trusted this woman, so they decided to get her out of Johnson Hall from any of her personal relationships and friends and get her to Albany, where they could keep an eye on her. So she picked Colonel Joseph Bloomfield, uh, Colonel, Captain Joseph Bloomfield, who we just talked about, to be her escort. And I've read accounts where there's a file of men that were supposed to go with her, but it looks like it was just him. And she had a small entourage of a couple of carriages and stuff, and then through all the tears and stuff, she, she left. And they took her to Albany. And on the way, Bloomfield is waylaid and harassed by a large group of men 
uh, presumably loyals, and that we're going to try to take the horse, say, oh, this is Colonel Johnson's horse, or this is Colonel White's horse, where'd you get the, where'd you get this, where'd you get that? And it was pretty hairy, and he actually drew pistols and threatened to shoot him down, just like a Western, when you're going to give him the, uh, you know, the sheriff's going to shoot the lead guy in the, the lynch mob. But uh, it was just too many of them, and they're all active. And just as he was going to have to make that decision to pull the triggers or not, a guy named Henry Deffendorf, who was a first lieutenant in a New York Continental Regiment, showed up and said, I'm going to save you. And he threatened to run him through. He had a sword or whatever. And it, sang, it sounds very much like, a, I call it the swashbuckling incident. It's very much like Errol Flynn and uh, Alan Hale and, going to, and Patrick Knowles are going to have the sword fight and save the, kill the sheriff of Nottingham. It has that ring to it. And as you you catch on, it's not about old movies, but yeah, he's uh, this is what it sounds like to me, and it's perfect. And I relate it in uh, my art, article in the jar about Henry Deffendorf. You can find it. This is part of his story. Deffendorf's a very fascinating guy. I don't, I don't want to get into it now, but something I just learned when I was doing the book because when you read these journals and stuff, you miss things. And when I went back, I found out that Bluefield and Deffendorf. A, a captain, it doesn't say him, but it has to be him. And a captain and a lieutenant, you can't tell the difference. That in 1776, there's really no difference except for a color cockade, which they didn't always wear. So it basically looked like both of another officer came in with Lady Johnson. So we know that they caught up with her and they came in with her. And uh, it was quite interesting. Not getting ahead, but that's uh, Lieutenant Elmer. But you read about Elmer in the book. I don't go into it. Here, I don't want to talk about him now. It's just too, too many details. But uh, Bluefield goes back to his committee, and the Lady Johnson is secured at Albany. Now, as a courtesy to the reader, I said, well, we can't just leave her here. Something happens to her. So I got into a bit of a shaggy dog story and a lack of some documentation, but I got some help, and I got a secondary source that picked up a little bit, and I tied some local history into it. And basically, she goes to... Uh, she finally, after a number of months, finally talks her way to get to want to go down to New York City. And they, they send her down to um, the New York Convention, which is the follow-up to the old New York University Congress. And they're meeting official. She gets there. They send her somewhere across the river, not too far from where I live. And she ultimately sneaks away in the middle of the night on a sled and skates on down to uh, New York City. So that's all related to the book. So she is tied into the Jerseys more so than Sir John is because she was there. And that's, and I get into all this, how she gets there. It's quite an interesting story. And there's a lot of gaps, like all this stuff. There's just things you don't know. And I was amazed how many people did not know what happened to Lady Johnson. There's all kinds of stories, but nobody seems to know. And there's one book out of Canada that had some good ideas, uh, some names that I was able to tie in, and then I recognized the location, so I was able to put it all together. Explain the fake duel highlighted in your book, and what are its consequences? Oh, yeah, the mighty dueling frolic, as Colonel Bluefield talked about in his journal, and that's where it's in, but I picked up some other support information. <laughs> Excuse me. Um, it was actually my first article I wrote for the jar. And... Uh, Duncan Campbell, who was a uh, local merchant, had joined Bloomfield's company of the uh, of the third New Jersey as a volunteer cadet, gentleman volunteer. There's a lot of names they use. But he joins up in late June 
but he doesn't seem very happy for it because he resigns in about two weeks. So he must have figured, and I'll get into that in a moment. I got an idea in my head here. But when he did this, one of the other volunteers, a guy named Edmund Thomas, who I discovered in some of my other writings, he was actually a good friend of uh, Captain Bluefield. And uh, he was not, he felt he wasn't treated with quote-unquote proper decorum by Campbell when he resigned, which he said, just, I don't understand this at all. There's no evidence of this at all. But he threatens Campbell who wants to have a duel with him with pistols, with proper satisfaction, this whole tradition of dueling. Now, it, it, this duel becomes a big production. With seconds and a written challenge and witnesses were there, and then more witnesses show up, which I'll get to. And even at the first fire, Thomas makes a point that he wants to take notice that if either of them should be killed, they forgive the, they forgive the survivor. So it's all really big. And it turns out Lieutenant Colonel White, Anthony Walton White, who is a very interesting and prickly character. He becomes a great officer with the Dragoons later on in the war. But his time in 1776 with the third New Jersey, uh, I cover off and on. He, he pops up along all these stories. And this man, at this time in his life, was crazy. He makes Colonel Anthony Wayne look like a tame cuss. And Actually, he and Wayne interface, I briefly touched that in the book, but White's a character, and he basically instigates this duel. And it was, he did it for two reasons. One, to make sure to divert the officers from trying to kill each other, actually put them into this fake duel, and then uh, also to see who has the metal to handle this, which is sadistic in its own way. See who cries, who runs away, who doesn't. And... Uh, what they did was all the officers were in on it and they loaded the guns with paper wads. And so they shoot, of course, and nobody falls down. So they want to have the Campbell keeps, well, um, you have to write names here so I don't get confused. Uh, Campbell doesn't really want to do this, but Thomas wants to shoot again. So Campbell is going along with this, though he's reluctant about this whole thing. So all he wants to do is leave the army. He's had enough of this garbage. Why is he still here? <laughs> but they keep going back and forth, and it ratchets, ratchets up. They get more frustrated. I can see him ramming the cartridge very quickly, and he's getting frustrated. And he fires, and he clicks, and he, he goes poof, and it makes a noise. The shot goes, and nothing, nothing happens. And they do this over and over again. And the crowd of the other officers build up. They're sitting on a rail fence. They're all laughing and cheering. It's a big thing. But finally, the officers, and specifically Colonel White, say, okay, that's it. We're done. Shake hands. Everybody's proven how good they are. Everybody's out of here. So that's kind of what the duel is. But my suspicion goes back to an interesting thing that happens on July 5th when there's a false alarm at camp. A tree falls over, and some of the sentries fire. There's a big to do, and it's described in both Bluefield's diary and Lieutenant Elmer's diary, who was uh, Bluefield's second lieutenant. They both describe it that Bluefield is quite good, and Bluefield is scared, but Elmer really takes him over the coals. Because this is, they're under fire, and this, most of these guys have never been under fire before, and it's a great description of what happens when there's an alarm in camp. And it's, the original is worth reading, and it's, it's in my articles, and it's also uh, 
I forget if I put it in the book or not, the full description of this, but this incident causes uh, a little bit of fear. And in fact, Bluefield gives, goes back to our man Thomas. He actually gave Thomas his money and said, if I die, see this just to my family. So Bluefield was scared. And what happens is I think Campbell was scared too. I think Campbell would have been, as a junior officer, he was probably there with the men. So uh, that's why I think it kind of, you know, I don't think I really like this. So he opted, it took him about a week, but he did resign. I think that's what caused it, though it's not written down. That's just my supposition. And it makes sense, you know. And why Thomas uh, just hated his resignation, why he made such a stink over it, it makes no sense because officers resign all the time. And there are several that resign out of the New Jersey in 76. So what was one more? It doesn't make any sense, but that's what happened. But the whole thing was there was a big to do about nothing, literally and figuratively. Philip Schuyler will face many issues uh, putting together the third New Jersey. Uh, what were they? Oh, sure. Schuyler's my guy. I mean, the more I do Northern Army stuff, Schuyler's the man. And uh, at the start of 76, um, this, the old New York Department, also known as the Separate Department, or Separate Army, because uh, it was the only army they, the Continental Army had, army being a section. They had sub-armies uh, from the other end versus the main army in New England. The only other army they had in 75 was the Separate Army or the New York Department. And they, they split them in two and, and for the new establishment. There was going to be a Canadian department and a Northern department. So Schuyler, who was the original, was one of the original major generals in the army. He commanded the old separate department. He was now going to be put in charge of the Northern department. And they got a couple of new major generals up there. Uh, one was, I think the first one was going to be Montgomery because he was promoted to major general before the end of the year. But of course he died. So then it became, uh, I would say, of course, it's General Thomas. He was, I think he got sick. I forgot off the top of my head. And then they brought in General Lee. But then Lee was said, look, we need you. They decided to send him down south to the new Southern Department. So then they got, they promoted Horatio Gates. And Horatio Gates was given that sign, that assignment. But by the time he got up there, the Northern, the Canadian Department was rolling itself up. The British were coming down. And the battles of Sorel and the Sears and all that stuff that happened over the early spring of 76. And the whole army folded up, so they all ended up back at Ticonderoga. So the, the, the Continental Congress has got two major generals sitting up there in the, in the same area. So what are they going to do? They made one of the most ridiculous decisions I've ever seen. They said, you share the command. Except Schuyler had the, had the seniority because he goes back to 75. But this was never going to work. But what they did was, uh, and this is as the rank of major general. Uh, Gates was named, uh, I say Gates, Gates had the Northern, he was the co commander, and I'm looking at some notes I have here. Uh, Gates ran the defenses of Unlake Champlain. And then Schuyler commanded the Albany area and points west. Schuyler was noted for basically running the war from his front porch 
oh, there's two places, his mission and then the house up in Saratoga area. So uh, this was a good spot for Stowler, actually. But uh, the kind of the overall was Stowler. So these guys banter back and forth. And uh, so he had to deal with all this throughout the next year with, and actually up until Saratoga in 77, because Gates and Stowler were both there. But what he ends up also having to deal with is, of course, where were John Johnson? They don't know where he went. They couldn't find him. Sir John was anywhere. And he had his followers, which were mostly Highlanders and other type of loyalists. Uh, then there was the Indians that were on his side. And he had to manage all this. So he, the only thing he had out there was the third jersey. And on top of that, where the British going to come down? Because there's no guarantee they're going to keep going down the, the lakes on Lake Champlain. They may swing over and swing down through the frontier over through Niagara or something. So he's watching this at the same time. Now, he knows the jerseys are going to go because almost all the way through the late summer, early fall, and this is in the book, these letters back and forth between Gates and Scott about getting the jerseys to go up north to Ticonderoga because all those forces are all leaving. They're all falling apart. So they need the jerseys to go back up to Ticonderoga. But who's he going to replace it with? So scout has got to deal with this. He's got to deal with the locals, make sure they're happy. Yeah, they were happy that Dayton and the regiment was leaving because they knew Dayton. And they knew we were going to send in another regiment. And, oh, we don't know that guy. We don't want him. And then he asked that when the jerseys are leaving, to go to Ticonderoga. He's got to hold them up. It's a big mess. And I am amazed at how well he's doing all this. And actually, initially, when he got the jerseys to go over, he was supposed to send them back. When he went over to the Mar Valley, he was supposed to go back and then go up with Sullivan to Canada. But so he's, where Sullivan is thinking of coming back, Scholar was already writing to Washington to say, I want to keep the jerseys. So he's double dealing everybody. And all, all this correspondence is in the Scholar papers. And I got in as much as I could fit in and keep the story moving. But it's a, it's just a wonderful collection of documents to read and see the administration has to be done with a quill pen. It's just, it's incredible. Could you tell us the story of the five boxes? Sure. Um, the, the five boxes is actually, that's actually technically the epilogue of the story. So it is at the end. It's the last thing in the book. But this is, relates around a couple of letters that uh, a uh, leading guy in the company military historians, Don Lendl Schmidt, who belongs to our West Point chapter. Don is a marvelous Revolutionary War researcher. Mostly does German, but he has binders and binders and binders and binders of books um, and of notes and type written things and clips he did throughout his life. I don't know how he even had a family. It just amazed me the amount of time he spent on this. And among his stuff that he was allowed me to get um, were a couple of letters, one in the Washington papers and one in the Scholar papers uh, that indicate that five boxes of supplies were shipped north from New Jersey in 1776. They were not they were not full, but they were to be topped off along the way with more stuff, and it was supposed to go to them. And they don't say how big these boxes are, but there's a way to find out. Um, but they never got to the jerseys, because one of these letters, dated in 1778, notes that, hey, we got this stuff. <laughs> and he wrote, they wrote to General... I think it was Maxwell. I don't think it worked to David Peter, but the Maxwell, who was the brigade commander. 
they said, look, for your, for the third regiment, we have all this stuff. And what are you going to, we want to get it to you. <laughs> you never, you never claimed it. So I'm, you know, it's just, it's bizarre. But then, because I think back, the old Albany storehouse in 1775, they gave the stuff out really nilly. Stuff is supposed to go to the Yorkers. It didn't necessarily go to the right company or the right regiments, because whoever needed stuff got it. And so, uh, and if it's documented, that that's what happened. So they must have changed their tool, and they got that, those boxes. They put them on the side and said, this is for them. And they just left it there. So uh, what really gets me is the whole thing is I had actually had a document that was found in the Cherry Hill Papers, which is Cherry Hill is the ancestral home of the Van Rensselaer family. And very powerful family at the time, one of the old Dutch manners. Uh, people and their papers they have, a, they have a marvelous research section mostly on 19th century stuff they have a little bit of 18th century items and one of these in this was a document that lists five boxes hats, breeches, jackets, stockings shoes, frocks, etc to be sent north in November 1776 for the jerseys this was the original invoice that was sent with the five boxes before anything was put in them. Now, there's no annotation that anything was. This was the use of the original document. And it's like it just dropped right into place. So uh, it's, uh, it's quite interesting. And the reason I determined that it was the same thing was because Philip Van Rensselaer, one of the Van Rensselaers, was actually at one point the storekeeper at the Albany storehouse. So that's how that document got there. And it makes perfect, it's, it's perfectly logical. And this whole story, and I mentioned, gives you two things. I already mentioned the one that the storehouse wasn't giving out stuff willy-nilly like you did. But also, and I like to think about this, because I know a lot of friends of mine that are researchers, and a lot, and there's a number of them that all sit here and say, they try to speculate, they make hypothesis. Well, it could have been this, and if this happened, they would have maybe done this, or they got their coats from here. Maybe they turned them inside out and they wore them here. This kind of twisted logic to fill in a gap in their research. And I've always been the one to say, let it go. You don't know, you don't know. And sure enough, that hole was not filled with those first letters. But there, long and behold, there's that piece of paper, that invoice, the original document that has the items in it that were in those five boxes, and there it was. So if you wait long enough, or you live long enough, the stuff may just turn up. It's one of the great lessons of research. And the actual the copy of the document is in the book, of that invoice. How does this book help us understand the revolutionary era better? Well, I like it because these stories and are about an early war regiment. It's so often overlooked that uh, with all these larger narratives, and oh, I've been reading Richard Ketchum and uh, Tom Fleming, who I knew oh, briefly, and even David McCulloch's 1776 and some of these other books that people read, very popular, very good authors, very great stories. They don't touch about this stuff. And if they do, they talk about Brandywine, Germantown, Monmouth, Guilford Courthouse, in Yorktown. They may get to Saratoga once in a while, but... Basically, the early war is where the Continental Army grew up. Those first two years, two separate years, and they had to keep the thing going. And this was all before the Declaration of Independence, when they, actually, the second one was in the middle, but they had to go through that process. And we are so lucky because the Third Jersey, for some unknown reason, 
has got huge amounts of documentation. I've got three journals that are on one company in one regiment. That's unheard of. Heck, I did this book and all my previous research without even trying to track down the, the Colonel Dayton papers, which exist. That's how much there is. There's even stuff from his lieutenant colonel. And I didn't use it here, but I used it on some other things. It's a huge amount of material, and this is why it's so valuable, this particular regiment. But just these things are out there. People look. And the early war where everything was kind of ad hoc and they're trying to do, like I say, there were three, one, two, three, four generals for the uh, Canadian department <laughs> in less than a year. So they were feeling their way. And this is why this story is so important. And it's just that this regiment had so much material. It's, if you saw the list of all these documents are, it's incredible. It is amazing. And as a guy who does it in New York for 75, I would kill for 10% of what that is. It's just amazing. So this to me is why this, this book and just a few stories, it's not original history by any means, but I wish it was, but I don't have the time to do that. As I say, I got the other one to do, but this is, uh, Probably the best documented regiment in the Continental Army for a one-year period. I don't think there's anyone out there that can even match this. I could be wrong, but I don't think so. Phil Weaver, thank you for joining us. Thank you, Brady. I really appreciate it. Take care. The music played in this episode included works by Kevin McLeod and the Sturbridge Colonial Militia. Any unauthorized reproduction or use of this podcast, without the express written permission of the Journal of the American Revolution, is strictly prohibited. For everyone here at Dispatches, I'm Brady Kreitzer saying so long.